the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yolala Tango, as always, for the music. We have Dax Shepard on our podcast today, everybody. If you haven't seen Dax and the many movies he's been in, the TV shows, Parenthood, he is the host of arguably one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Not arguably, it's like top three. Totally jealous of his podcast success. Dax Shepard of Armchair Expert. I've been lucky enough to be a guest on his podcast, so I'm so honored that he's agreed to be on mine. But uh, Dax, I don't know how he did this, but past year has been tough with quarantine, and he's come out with a TV show. He's the new host of Top Gear America. If you haven't seen Top Gear, the original British series, it's one of, literally one of the biggest TV shows in the world. And you can watch it on the Motor Trend app, which has the entire catalog of all the, the top gear shows. But he's a real gearhead, expert, car enthusiast, and makes me wish I was more into cars. And the only reason I'm not is I'm a fucking shitty driver. <laughs> I mean, I just, I want to learn more, but man, maybe that's something I should have done during quarantine is just, you know, get more into cars so I can appreciate them more. But, uh, well, that's also what you get when you live 20 plus years in New York City. (laughs) No need to have a car. But uh, before we get into that podcast with Dax, and we go not just into cars, we talk about Detroit hot dogs and a few other food items. So don't worry, people. We definitely get into food. Uh, But first, we get into a conversation with Isaac Lee, and we talk about the pros and cons of making podcasts remotely. And, you know, it leads up to a conversation with Dax because I really admire how he's evolved and how he does his podcast, Armchair Expert. And again, check it out. Uh, So many amazing guests, and you can learn quite a bit. And uh, it's definitely in my queue every week to listen to him and Monica, his co-host. So I will shut up, let you get into our conversation with Dak Shepard, but first, our little podcast meta talk with Isaac Lee. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card, issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. I'm talking with uh, Isaac Lee. Chris Yang is uh, taking a breather on today's podcast. But we were talking about the format changing on this podcast as it's been an ever-moving target. Clearly, the world has changed and doing in-face interviews is something that may never honestly happen again, even after COVID-19 is gone. And, And The Ringer and Spotify, the people we work with, they're starting to figure out exactly what happens when the world comes back normal. And, and the thing is, maybe podcasts are better 
over Zoom calls. It's the one thing where Zoom actually is better is maybe doing a podcast. Hmm. And Isaac was asking, why don't I ever ask my friends, some of whom are very well known? And uh, we have Dak Shepard on the podcast today, and he is going to talk about his new show, Top Gear USA, on the Motor Trend app. And I cannot recommend it enough. It is exactly what you want to watch if, if you even don't even like cars. Grace doesn't even care about cars, and she thought it was hilarious. Hmm. It's exactly what you want to watch right now. Um, I'm sorry, Top Gear America. Top Gear um, America. But, you know, I have friends that are well-known, I don't ever really ask them. Yeah. Because, I, listen, everybody seems to have a podcast, and everybody seems to ask well-known people to be on their podcast. And I feel weird to ever ask anyone. So I don't. And Isaac always gives me shit for like not I mean, <laughs> bringing more people on. It's a little bit frustrating as the producer to be like, I see you talking to John Legend. And obviously you have all of these celebrity friends who you know. And it's like, why don't we have these big names on the podcast? It'll be good for our download numbers. It'll just be good for the show. But I actually totally respect that. If you value these relationships, you're not going to turn it all into a work relationship, you know. But I do want to ask about the Zoom meeting thing. Like, you've been doing this podcast remote and in studio for the past three years. Do you feel like it's given us flexibility? Because I feel like this. It's given us flexibility now that we're all completely remote to just call up whoever from anywhere? Yeah. Yes, we can get anybody now, theoretically speaking. And... You know, clearly we focused it to a few buckets. Dads, my opinion is fact, over under, a few interviews here or there, too small to fail. And we're shaping this in different ways that continues to grow. And getting guests was the previous way of how we did the podcast. It was almost always guests. And Mm -hmm. and now it's a little bit less so, a lot less so. And I think that it works better in terms of scheduling. Mm-hmm. But there's something that will never be replaced with talking to someone, being able to give someone a handshake or a hug. And, you know, a lot of times when we would do the podcast, you're talking to them beforehand and then you start to record and then you right. talk to them after. Or we might go get lunch or or breakfast or a cup of coffee after the fact. And that doesn't happen. So I miss that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the scope of guests we're allowed to get, it's certainly easier. I don't know what the future holds on that. But I also feel nervous asking people that are well-known to be on the show. So my rule of thumb is if they want to be on the show, they're going to ask, then we'll have them on the show clearly. But I don't want to ever be like, dude, you got to be on the show. But, you know, podcast is a crazy thing that I think people are still figuring out. Like, look at Dax. Mm -hmm. Armchair Expert is one of the top three podcasts. I don't know about top three, but it's pretty huge. It's pretty big. It's huge. Yeah. And here is an actor slash comedian that I think the younger general audience has known for a long time since he's been on Punked. Mm -hmm. And he's done a variety of films and, and things like that. But it's he's found an audience that is way bigger than I think people could have imagined. And he's incredibly good at it. And mm-hmm. let me ask you, why do you think he's so good at being a podcast host? He's a great host in general. He's a great host in general. Top Gear um, America is an amazing show. I think a lot of the most successful podcast hosts tend to have like a bit of a like a laid back personality. They're okay with rolling with the punches in a way. And there's a certain level of intimacy and comfort in listening to a podcast, right? It's It's people literally right next to your ear talking to you 
And so the best people who are suited to do that are the people who are going to be speaking articulately and slowly. And I don't know. I mean, this is all kind of, this is my armchair expert moment, right? Like I've only been doing this job for the last three and a half years. And from what I can gather, people tend to gravitate towards those kinds of comforting presences. You know, I grew up listening to Bill, my boss, and it was like this white uncle from Boston that I never had. You know, it's it's kind of like this, even if I didn't really understand what he was talking about or what he was saying or football, you know, I'm not a big football fan. It's still just the the rhythm and the presence of the voice constantly being there. So in a meta sense, I think that's why he's so good at it. There's like technical things that I don't think anyone really cares about, but... But also having Monica on his podcast, and if you haven't listened to Armchair Expert, you should. His guest list is extraordinary. Um, It's a nice balance. It's it's like having a great conversation and, you know, getting back to asking guests. I I don't know what the future holds and who we get. We'll see. But some of them, I think our best podcasts have been people that you would never expect. Yeah. You know, like Professor Whitman or Professor Blonder. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, my hope is that we we get a blend of both. We get some unknown people who come on and and just rock our socks off or some well-known guests who tell interesting stories that aren't told anywhere else. Like, I hate being part of the the media circuit. Like, I don't like being part of the press junket. I kind of want to see celebrities come on in the off-season of whatever they're doing, right? And just promote nothing. Just come on and talk about yourself or talk about something else that you're interested in. Right. So we'll see what happens. You don't have kids on Zoom, right? Yours are real little? My, no, I, my son's like 22 okay. months. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So no Zoom for you. So in my household, there's this wonderful dance in the morning. Like, which one of us is going to get up and tend to this? Getting the six and seven-year-old on their respective Zoom classes. And so today it became evident, oh, she's sleeping. So this is, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to see this through. And then that really just set everything. It was the house of cards. I mean, I can only imagine. I'm thankful <laughs> that my son's not even two years old, but if he was six or seven or eight, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd relapse is what you'd do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But you're hanging in there. Oh Everything's yeah, yeah, good? yeah, yeah, man. I'm feeling uh, I'm 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 quite wonderful actually, even guiltily so, because this is a fucking beating for so many people right now. But um, yeah, I get to record the show all week, which keeps me feeling busy and productive and having a purpose. And then I have all this free time with my kids, which I'm you know for the most part seventy percent of the time love. We were talking before you came on. Do you think that when you will? We get back to normal. You're, are you going to have guests come back in person or you think you'll always do remote? Oh, I mean, it's so significantly better in person from my perspective. I don't yeah. know if the end result for the listener is that different. But for me, the experience of, of being in that shared space and all the different chemical things that happen that are now well documented, you know. So I will always, if the people are willing to come down to the attic, I'll always take that. But I will say, I flat out rejected it pre-COVID. I wouldn't even entertain the notion of interviewing someone over the computer. 
But of course, necessity demanded it. And then, of course, it opened up the door to all these guests we would have never gotten otherwise. Like to try to figure out when Hillary Clinton could come to my attic or Bill Gates or some of these people we've gotten in the last year. And many of those conversations were really wonderful and some of our best. So it has changed my stance on it for sure. But I, I would definitely prefer in person always. It's like sexting versus sex, you know, it's stimulating. <laughs> <laughs> when you started the podcast, like when we started this show, I thought we were just going to go after the, the food audience and chefs and that was it, you know, and obviously if there was any carryover from Bill Simmons and The Ringer, that would be great. But, I, you know, I've learned it's it's a growing audience and it's something that I'm getting better at. But when you started it, did you have any anticipation that'd be one of the biggest podcasts of all time? Like it's people, it's like <laughs> no. huge and you're so good at it. Like, did you think that you're training as an actor, as an improv, as a host was all going to distill in the armchair expert? I didn't. And I, I have a hunch that's the only reason it has succeeded to the <laughs> level it has because I had zero expectations. I did not expect great success. I have in general in my professional career tried very hard, worked very hard and had very underwhelming results. <laughs> so that's pretty much my expectation is like, oh, I'll I'll work my ass off for two years and then I'll be suicidal on Friday when the movie comes out. But yeah, so I, I didn't expect that. And um, and then I was cocky and naive thinking, oh, well, I've been in a million interviews over the last 17 years. Like I, I love doing interviews and I'm, you know, I do fine in them. So I kind of underestimated how much of a role reversal it is. And even at that, it never did become the full role reversal where I'm just like, shooting questions at people. I very much want to just have a conversation with somebody and then find stuff out along the way, as opposed to like, you know, I have 20 questions I'm going to ask you and you're not even going to acknowledge I'm a human being. I'm just, <laughs> you know, this source right. of questions. So to the point you were just making about your own show is, um, I think everyone has a notion of what their show is going to be. And I think you really got to be flexible enough to find out what your show is, because I certainly was aiming for one thing. And then was smart enough at 44 to listen to what was working and and recognize what it should be. And it evolved. It evolved quickly, but it definitely evolved. And I've said this before, the really, really eye-opening experience for the podcast was starting to do live shows and taking questions from people who like the show. Because then you kind of find out what it is they like about the show. And in a very covert way, like I love Sam Harris's podcast, used to be obsessed with it. And I would sometimes listen to his live shows. And when he would take questions, every single person asking a question would go on this very scientific monologue, demonstrating to him how smart they are. And so what I quickly gleaned from that is, oh, they really like that he's smart and they want him to know they're smart. So our questions were always... Oh my God, um, I was wearing a dress when I got here, but my thighs were sweating too much. So I had to go to Ross, Ross dress for less and buy this cheap sweatsuit. So I, I look terrible, but anyways, my thighs are always so sweaty. I should never wear dresses. I was wondering in the morning, what, and then the question would come. And almost every one of the questions involved some like good money offering of vulnerability. Like I'm flawed in this way. And now here's my question. And I thought, oh God, that's what our show is. That's clearly what it is they like about it and what they're trying to share with me, they are also trying to practice. And then that kind of helped us feel confident in what it was. 
you know, one of the things I feel like we're trying to, I wouldn't say outright copy, but find our way of doing it was I loved how you and Monica would do a very organic intro to your guest and then do a, this is what I learned. I think that was such a clever, powerful way. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that. But I'll be honest, I was incredibly jealous because it was such a layup. I was like, fuck, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what you should be doing. <laughs> yeah. And that that too came out of something that was just like, okay, I, I know myself well enough to know that I am regularly referencing data I learned in 1999 in college. You know, I left I left UCLA in 2000 and I didn't continue my studies. So whatever I'm referencing is either A, I've misremembered at this point or B, it's changed. So much of the stuff I learned has already completely changed in anthropology in particular. And Monica has busted me on that numerous times. So she's like, I know you, you're going to just be spouting off all this, all these facts that you're, you're rusty on. And someone's got to point out when you're right or wrong. And I was like, yeah, that is a really good idea because I, I actually don't aim to misinform anyone. I'm I'm generally sincere when I'm telling you, I think this many people live in Michigan and this percentage is black and this percentage is Asian. You know, I'm not trying to mislead anyone. So yeah, it's, and then it evolved again. It starts as a fact check and now really it's just our favorite part of the show. And we just get to shoot the shit and have our stupid arguments that we have in real life on air. Don't you find that's the best conversation that when an interview ends and then the conversation starts, you're like, fuck, I wish this was being recorded. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, even with guests, do you, do you have that with guests where it's like, it's, you know, it's officially over yeah. and now you're just kind of shooting the shit and you're like, yeah, why wouldn't, you know, you should, Always. why wouldn't you say that? That's not like, that's not embarrassing. That's a great story. You should, you know. <laughs> um, speaking of recording and creating during COVID, you recorded a show on the Motor Trend app, but it's a show that if you just watch TV or you like cars, you're going to know. You brought back Top Gear and it's Top Gear America. And I was like, when the hell did you film this? Yeah. So I started shooting that show while I was also finishing the last probably seven episodes of Bless This Mess, which was a show on ABC I was on for the last couple of years. So... You know, generally uh, on a comedy, on a network comedy, you shoot for three weeks and then you have one week off so the writers can catch up. So for a few months, every one week off, I would then go to Top Gear and fly somewhere and drive cool cars in some awesome location. And then when we finished filming in January on Bless This Mess and Wrap for the season, then we went full time on Top Gear. But then, of course, we were in Texas doing a truck episode and all of the productions were getting shut down, except for ours. We were, I want to say we were literally the last one. And my wife, I kept calling home to my wife and she's like, you're still shooting, huh? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> they, they haven't told us we're not. And she's like, well, you know, are you going to say something? I'm like, no, I'm not going to say anything. I don't feel like the guy that's going to be like, we must shut this down. But lo and behold, in the middle of the episode, we got to work one morning and they were just like, okay, the BBC finally called and liability wise, everyone's got to go home. So then we we drove home. I guess that was in March. Uh, we drove home from Austin and then we had some total shutdown time off, maybe four months. And then we came back in during the pandemic, but at the lull of all the new cases 
And then this show just kind of shifted. So then we could only drive to locations. We couldn't fly anymore. And the crew got smaller. And, you know, we got tested four days a week. And the cool thing about Top Gear is um, it's 100% outside. So you're either standing outside reviewing these cars or you're inside a car by yourself. So it, it's kind of a really easy show to shoot during a pandemic. And then I now return for the next season in two weeks. And again, we'll drive everywhere we're going to shoot. It saved me, I got to say. I was getting <laughs> fucking steer crazy. Come, I guess we went probably went back in July or something. And I'm the type of person that I have to have something on my calendar I'm looking forward to. If I don't, I'm just adrift and I hate it. I need to look forward to something. So as soon as I returned to that job, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. Well, listen, I've only watched the first couple episodes, but I know it's a show that is amazing for me when my wife loves it, too. Right. Oh, and she doesn't uh -huh. care about cars. And I, listen, I'm a. I'm not a gearhead, and even a casual fan of you is going to know, like, wow, Dax Shepard loves cars. <laughs> yeah, so, and, uh, unhealthy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so how the hell did you get the job to host and produce and to star in it? Did, did you reach out or did they reach out? Like, what happened there? Well, let me start by saying that um, I absolutely loved the original British Top Gear with Jeremy Clarkson and... Um, James May, and uh, I'm embarrassing myself that I'm forgetting right now. But at any rate, the original three of Top Gear, was th there was just magic in that cast. And I watched it, and that was, um, I remember watching a 60-minute segment about it. And that was the biggest show in the world, globally. They had like 700 million viewers at the height of their popularity. And then famously, the show... Um, fell apart because uh, it is alleged that Jeremy punched one of the producers and then <laughs> they booted them and then they recast. And then also, uh, you know, simultaneous to that, there's been a few iterations of a Top Gear America. I was on one of them, my good friend Rutledge hosted, and he's lovely. And there's been all these iterations. So I guess they called me and I found it to be a tricky thing to buy into because... In the same way, I got, I one time was offered to star in Fletch, a remake of Fletch. And I said, that's just a lose, lose, lose for me. <laughs> if I'm perfect, I'll be a little bit not as good as Chevy Chase. You right. know? And, and that's if I'm perfect. I'm certainly never going to exceed Chevy Chase in that role. And so this show had that same potential risk. So when I met with them, I said, look... I would love to do the show. All I care about is cars. It's what I pay all my discretionary income on is fucking around in cars. So yeah, if you guys want to flip the bill for me to fuck around in cars, I, that sounds like a dream job. But the only version I'd really want to do is the one that captures the spirit of the first three guys, which was there was such a strong punk rock vibe to it. Like, are these guys going to get thrown in jail? I mean, the fact that the show ended with someone punching someone makes total sense to me. So I just said, you know, I would love to do this show where you're scared a bit and where there's a real punk rock vibe to it. And they were very into that. And then then they just started adding guys. And then, you know, so Rob Cordry was next. And I just adore Rob Cordry. And he is a dangerous, in the best way, comedian where you don't know if he's going to get punched himself or and so I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. And then visually, it's just perfect between Rob and I. And then we auditioned all these guys. 
And there was one guy who was just so obvious to be the third person. And uh, this kid, Jethro from England, who's a very serious automotive journalist. He raced cars for years. He's so knowledgeable and an expert. And then you put the three of us together and it just became this like, I just think we hit the jackpot, like chemistry wise and in the symmetry of the three of us and how it all works. And, you know, I have a very, very um, fragile ego. So I'm, I'm just so competitive with Jethro because he's a great driver and I must be the great greatest driver there. And then Rob is funnier than me. And then I, I must be funnier than him. So it's just a wonderful setup for me to have to defend all the things I like about myself. There was no acting when you found out that you didn't beat Jethro on the racetrack, right? No, 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 no. I was like, I I think he's genuinely pissed off. (laughs) Yeah, no, they film. (laughs) There is this first season. There's, there's about six priceless moments where either he's waiting to find out my time or I'm waiting to find out his time because it went back and forth all season. Like I beat him on the snow course. He beat me on this racetrack. He, you know, and it definitely went back and forth. So we were both always legitimately concerned when those times were coming out. And again, both of us stupidly hanging our identity on being a good driver. Like on the <laughs> days that we would lose to one another, it would ruin the next three days for us. And I'd see him and I'd be like, oh my God, I know exactly what you're doing right now. You're convinced you have no value as a person <laughs> because the only good thing about you is you're a great driver. And he's like, yes. <laughs> well, that's what I love. And I was jealous of this show. You know, we have the show on Netflix and we're doing a bunch of stuff for Hulu and our our goal, besides being educational, is always, can you make it fun? Because that's what translates. Can you make it real? Because that's what's going to translate. Yeah. And I was like, shit, here's a guy that loves cars, gets to hang out with great co-hosts. And it's like, wait, how the hell did this happen? He's doing exactly what he wants to do. I could not agree with you more. I had this, this very specific moment in August. We were shooting in... Sedona and in Flagstaff. But but there was one day where I had to go down to Phoenix and review a uh, Charger Hellcat wide body. And the premise of this review was, you know, they sell these cars as drag cars, but that's so limiting, you know, just going in a straight line in this car, it, it must be worthy of more. And then the, my conclusion is this is a dirt track car. And then I go out onto this flat track, this old deserted flat track in Phoenix, and I just drift this Hellcat around for three and a half hours, is just as fast as I can go, sideways the whole day. My bosses are delighted I'm doing that. I'm ruining tires, the whole nine yard, nine yards. And then I get in my car to drive home, and I I just was like, how did everything I love come together into <laughs> one thing? Like, I'm supposed to be funny, I'm supposed to have some improv training, I'm supposed to be good at driving cars. And it just, it felt suspiciously impossible that, yeah. My, the, it's the first time in my life I've ever felt like, oh, now the whole thing makes sense. Like it's all come together, all these threads It really came did together. Came together. <laughs> that scene in particular, I was like, wait, <laughs> it's clear that you genuinely have an amazing time. And you, the, the line of like, it's, this car, the Hellcat should only go straight or turn left. is fucking hilarious. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and then ironically, I got home and I bought one of those. And you like, really oh, did, because <laughs> you said you were going to buy one and you actually <laughs> bought it. And I actually did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, there's a four-door sedan that is 700 horsepower and will get sideways at the slightest provocation. And they sell them. Yes, we need this. 
I watch a lot of unscripted television because that's like sort of my job now. And mm-hmm. I was really blown away. I was impressed. And there's a one bit particular, at least in the first episode, where you're testing the Lamborghini. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you basically, without going too much into it, I thought to myself, when you start to reveal your childhood obsession and growing up and there was a blue Lamborghini in your neighborhood where it shouldn't have been, you're talking about your mom. Do you think that without the podcast, you would have spoken about all those things? Well, I do only because, you know, I've been in AA for going on 17 years. So I think the only reason I'm able to do the podcast is actually because I'm so used to being in meetings and sharing what's going on and then finding out through that experiment that the men in the room aren't judgmental of me, that they identify, they're not like repulsed by my failings and all this stuff. So that's who deserves credit is AA because I just got used to opening up around strangers. And I found that it was generally met with positive empathy and not judgment. No, you turn a scene that I was like, there's no way I would feel an emotional connection over a car. But you did it. You know, like I was like, wow, like that's amazing. I have a a new perspective on a Lamborghini other than this is just a ridiculous looking car that I will never afford or want to drive, you know? Well, and what I like about that segment too is like, we also just, like, I love the car and I'm like, oh, this is the douchiest car you can own. Like you buy this car to say I'm rich. So it's like, you're getting all of it. I love the thing. It's so fun for me to drive. I have this history of it, and I recognize what has happened to that thing. I've been really, really grateful that the director, the showrunner, and then just the network has been, like, really embracing us making it ours, as opposed to us trying to fit perfectly into what it was. I want to talk about food in a second, but you just threw in a dip, and I used to dip a lot growing up. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel that this is going to die out in the next generation? Oh, it has to. I People are so repulsed by it, as they should be. It is the grossest habit. I had it licked for nine years, and I had a single fucking pinch like two years ago in the sand dunes, and I've been on and off it, on and off it. But yes, it, in fact, I... um. How do I say this without getting in trouble? I had a socially distanced hang with a kid from England. Well, I'm sorry, from Australia who races Formula One. And I put this dip and I saw the look on his face and I immediately knew it was like, the look was, oh my God, this guy is so trashy. (laughs) You know, like, especially I think coming from Australia where nobody does that. Right. Like, let me get this straight. You're going to put something in your mouth and you're going to spit in a bottle for the next 15 minutes in front of me. I mean, it's so vile. Have you tried the... Zins? Yeah, Zins. What do you think about those? They're not for me. Like, when I go off these, I just go back to the mints. I've been on the lozenges for I, 16 years with great success. These are the lozenges. Right. And, yeah, when I go off dip, I just go back onto those, and they work great. I like the Zins. Uh, like, when I go fly fishing or something like that, I usually have a tobacco product. Because I used to smoke. I, growing up in Virginia— Everybody did some kind of chewing tobacco product. It just oh, yeah. was like there's no yeah. way you did it. That was it was dirt cheap back then, and especially cheaper in Virginia. Yeah. But um, I was wondering, have you ever been to Scandinavia? I have, but not when I dipped. So I didn't do the snooze. 
when I was there. Is that what you're about to yeah. say? I spent a, I spent a fair amount of time in Scandinavia, and one of the things that I was always impressive to me was. Like if you're just walking in the streets and you look in the backseat of every car, you're going to see at least two or three rolls of dip. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they figured out how to do it like in an elegant, elevated way. Yeah. So the snus you just swallow, they don't spit. And they which, never spit. No. So that immediately gets rid of the grossest part of it. And it's in a little self-contained pouch. So you don't Correct. have bits of tobacco all over your teeth. There's a restaurant that closed recently and was one of the best restaurants. And I know, you know, we, Fancy food, whatever. But it, it was a by a, a chef, Magnus Nielsen, good friend of mine. And it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's like an eight-hour drive from Stockholm on a like a 100,000-acre nature preserve. Everything's from that land. One of the things they grow, though, is tobacco. Ooh. Because if you go to this restaurant, you're staying a couple days, staying on the property. <laughs> and I was like, why are you growing? I was like, that's tobacco. Why the fuck are you guys growing tobacco? Yeah. And he's like, oh, for snooze box. I was like, so who's doing it? For your cooks? He's like, no, the guests. Oh. So at the end of the meal, they make their own snooze and they offer a snooze box to all the guests. Oh. And imagine this, you're in a fancy, like log cabin-ish <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> and at the end of the meal, you basically see all the guests, both women and women, snoozing out of the oh. snooze box. It was like an acid trip. I didn't understand what was going on. I love it. Okay, now I have a follow-up question about your time in Scandinavia. So, when I went to Sweden in particular, I was walking around Stockholm, and it's the most average I've ever felt in my life physically. Like, here, you know, I'm, I'm almost 6'3", used to be more blonde, but blonde, blue-eyed, very fair skin. And I went there, and I'm like, oh, I'm the, the average citizen here. Yeah. Half the people are taller than me, half are shorter than me. It's so overwhelming. And I wonder, how did you feel there? <laughs> Again, I, I'm probably there two, three times a year. And every time I am in awe of their genetics, I don't understand. <laughs> no. Oh, they're, yeah. You're a big dude, but you're right. You are Right, average. and there's like women, 20% of the yeah. women walking by me are taller than me. <laughs> it's also interesting, like in the mornings, you see people working out or running and they're just of a, different breed. They're fucking Vikings. Yeah, they they're, really they're, are. They're just giants. Mm -hmm. And to be 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six is like normal there. And yeah. they're not skinny. They're they're strapping. They're, they're just big people. I'm six feet and I feel like a tiny, tiny, tiny person there. Yeah, 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 exactly. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got 
a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Funny enough, at least in, in Copenhagen, and I, I think a little bit less so in Stockholm, hot dogs are a really big thing in Denmark. Big, oh. big thing. Hot dogs everywhere. Hot dog carts. One of the first things you get in the airport are hot dogs, right? You have to yeah. eat hot dogs. It's a, it's a something that I don't think people really associate with Copenhagen or Denmark in general. Yeah, I've been there and I missed that. I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that. They have good hot dogs, but you know, I know you talked about it before. Hot dogs for you. That's the only food I could possibly say I'm an expert on. I mean, I've heard you talk about hot dogs. You know a lot, partly because of Detroit and Coney Island and Lafayette. If you haven't been to Oof. Detroit, you are missing mm. out. I'm I'm glad to have experienced that, but you are a true hot dog connoisseur. I think I am. Um, you know, people can really, they can get, as you said, in the weeds, uh, arguing about pizza. It's like, I kind of get it. You know, Chicago's deep dish, uh, New York's very thin and I like them both, whatever. Yeah. But Detroit has this thing, which is silly. It's called this because Coney Island is of course in New York, but yes, we have Coney Islands or Coney dogs and there's millions of them. There, there's definitely way more of those than there are McDonald's or any of the fast food restaurants combined in the Detroit metropolitan area. And the cathedral, as you say, the uh, the Notre Dame of Coney Islands is Lafayette. And then directly next door, like sharing a wall, is American. And so it was an identity thing in Detroit. There were people that were American families and there were people that were Lafayette and you you disdained those people walking into America and you couldn't understand why they would possibly do that. And it was always the carrot at the end of the stick for my, so my mom would want us to get up at, you know, 5.30 in the morning and go down to the Thanksgiving Day Parade in Detroit, which is always, you know, eight degrees. It's miserable. There's a bunch of people you're going to park three miles away and walk through the snow. The only thing that got us there is that at the end of that, we got to go to Lafayette or same with the going downtown for the Christmas thing. We'd get to go to Lafayette. So she got us to do a million things going there. It's so good. It's so unique. They have a natural casing hot dog. So it's got that pop. And then the chili is its own proprietary blend, right? And there's no, the beef is so finely ground. It's nearly a powder. There are no beans to be found. Uh, and they also do a loose burger, which is really nice, just ground beef with some chopped onion and that famous chili. And so I grew up loving those. Went to Chicago, you know, fell in love with the Chicago dog. I'm all about that dog. Split it in half, butterfly it, put the peppers on it. The bun is different. It's sweeter. We do our chili dogs, our Coney dogs. Uh, we deeply steam that bun, man. It should almost be a paste when you get it. <laughs> and... Uh, the Chicago dog is different. And then, of course, I've fallen in love with Nathan's. There's there's a place in my heart for Nathan's, uh, especially the natural casing ones, if you, you grill them. So I'd be I'd be really curious to know what's what their take on the hot dog is in Denmark. Are they doing any are they replicating any of those traditions or are they have their own thing? 
it's their own thing. And um, I don't know what the casing are, but it definitely has a snap. I don't know if they're natural. I think they may be artificial. And they have, uh, it's more of a mustard onion culture, I think. Okay. And yeah. they also offer sausages, like the bigger, bigger things that I, you know, don't know the names of. Right. But it's good. It's all good. That I'm super into as well. Um, I once went in 2000, my senior year of college, I went with three Detroit buddies to Prague. And that's still when Prague, you couldn't spend $12 in a day. Right. Like we would try. We'd, <laughs> we'd hit the streets at nine in the morning. We'd eat three times and we'd be drunk all fucking day. We'd get back to our room and we'd be like, how much you spent? I think I went through $9. Like you just couldn't spend 10 bucks. But we were so in love with the kielbasas from the street. Because they were like a quarter. They were like 25 cents. And it was a straight half pound kielbasa that was sensational. And then I one time was in Poland and they had the same thing where they were everywhere. It was very similar to Prague. And I, I ate a bunch while I was there as, as well. I love a street kielbasa. I just one love of it. My best meals of my life was in Austria in a like a mountain town. And the only thing they served was big things of beer. And their local sausage, no fucking bread. Oh, and they just on <laughs> they a wooden say, platter, uh, toothpicks, uh, and mm. that's it. And you dip it in a little mustard. And I was like, this is what I want to be eating all the time. And they charred over wood. I was like, fuck, this will never fly in America. Yeah, yeah. But I hope that it one day happens here. Have you eaten at Salt Lick? The proper salt lick where you're out in the field down in Texas and driftwood, no, I think. No, I've been to a bunch of barbecue spots that are in the middle of nowhere. I have not been to salt lick, though, although I have eaten the one in the airport quite a bit. Well, that one's good. If you've had the smoked sausage there, even at the airport, it's pretty darn good. But they'll, they'll put it on soft white bread there. But when you go down to the restaurant, you know, they're only asking you, like, here's the wait the waiter or waitress is like, uh, do you want to eat? And if you say <laughs> yes, then what you're signing up for is... Unlimited everything, right? So unlimited slaw, potatoes, bread, and then smoked uh, sausage, which I think is a kielbasa type sausage, ribs, brisket, and some other thing. And you just eat until you can't eat anymore. They just keep bringing plate after plate. But they do, they bring that sausage, which I'm always re-upping on that sausage. They just bring it on a plate, as you say, sliced, and you just fucking stab it with the fork little barbecue sauce, and down the hatch. And that's what I focus on when I'm at Salt Lake. Well, I'm glad that you like the sausage. I think that is one of the most underrated food items in all of Texas barbecue. And I'm far from a Texas barbecue expert. But in my opinion, I think Texas barbecue is the best because it's the cleanest. There's no sauce. And obviously, brisket and beef get all the star attention, the star mm. attraction. But you nailed it on the head. I think the most underrated thing in Texas barbecue is the sausages, particularly the jalapeno cheddar links. Ooh, ooh. ooh they're mm. so fucking good, man. I yeah. want that right now. Well, you know, it is similar, I think, to bacon, where it's like if you had to really just say, what is the best thing you could put in your mouth that has no, <laughs> nothing, no accentuations? Just you take it out of the fucking package, you fry it, and then you eat it. It's such an explosion of flavor. And I think the sausage is in that world, too, where you don't really have to do shit to it other than smoke it. And it's going to be phenomenal. On the bacon, because I want to send you some. I ooh, will. Ooh, ooh. Do you like intensely smoky, like crazy smoky or just hmm. have you had Benton's bacon? It's a very popular bacon these days. I've known the, the guy, Alan Benton, for a long time. He is the sweetest man in the world. 
And then once you have this bacon, you feel like you had like <laughs> a real beer for the first time. You know, it's like, oh, I, that's a shot of Jack Daniels. Mm. It's, it's real. Every other bacon is not bacon. Well, yes. And again, here we come back to the hot dogs a little bit where, I mean, it's kind of like macaroni and cheese. There are places that have insane macaroni and cheese. Very memorable. You want to go back. It's so unique. And at the same time, you're never going to beat a box of craft prepared perfectly, in my opinion. It is perfect. So for me, <laughs> an Oscar Mayer slice of thin bacon that you cook to where when you bite in, it's like a powder explosion. Like it is, <laughs> it is so crisp. It turns into powder. It's hard to beat that. Now, with that said, I have had a thicker cut bacon where they seem to like caramelize it maybe, or there's some maple in there. And it's more like eating brisket. And that is also wonderful. No, no, no. This is, you want it to be crispy. It is just so fucking smoky. You feel like you got to change your clothes. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it is intense and it gets crispy. It's not uh, that soft stuff. I don't like that too much. No, right? no, no. But I also agree the, the, the commercial Oscar Mayer thin strip bacon, that is good pan fried or in the microwave where it's crispy. That's what you Oof. want in a sandwich. Hard yeah, when you pick it up, it should not bend at all. There, no, like, you, the structural integrity should be just at the yeah. point of exploding. Yeah, <laughs> it's like cracking into a very thin, like, scores candy bar. That's uh -huh. what you want, right? Right? Yes, 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 yes. And I appreciate your love of Kraft macaroni and cheese. That is exactly how... Uh, do you have a proprietary um, technique? Because I do, and I'm curious if you have one. No, I'm... I'm Listen, we do craft uh, or Annie's or all that stuff because that's Annie's is great. My wife only wants that. I, I yeah, you know, I yeah. made her the fanciest mac and cheese from scratch, and she's like, I, I just don't want to eat it. Right. <laughs> so I said, I, especially when she was pregnant, she's like, I said, I want the fucking box. Give mm -hmm. me the box macaroni and cheese, craft or Annie's, and I just do it by the. Uh, I cook the pasta. I don't have anything that's special. I add a knob of butter and I add some milk, and that's it. What's your trick? Okay. And this is wasteful. I'm going to own it. It's wasteful. I'm a bad person. But what I do is I take two boxes. I pull out two packets of the, uh, <laughs> but I only make one box of the noodles. And so I then prepare the first go round is right off the instructions. I'll tilt it a little bit. I'll favor the butter more. So you're supposed to use a quarter cup or a half stick of butter. And I'll probably use five of the instead of four. And then downsize the butter a little bit. I get it really creamy. And then I go in, so that's completely mixed. Now that's creamy. Now I go in with the second packet and I make it a little bit creamier, but I leave some orange chunks. So now I'm getting the best of both worlds because there's a creamy base and I'm getting those pops of the orange powder explosion. You want the clumps. Wow. I do, I do. Oh, I want both though. Because if you just undermix the one packet of cheese, you're going to have a lot of noodles that are not covered in creamy sauce. But if you first make it with a beautiful, perfectly made base, and then you add the chunks, you're not sacrificing anything. I really recommend you give it a shot because it's pretty dynamite. I I think of all the things that have ever been said on this podcast or the hundreds of hours we've ever recorded, <laughs> this is going to be pull quoted. <laughs> and it's going to go out to the world because I think people's heads are going to explode because it's never been done. Kraft's going to love it because it's so wasteful. You have to buy two fucking boxes to make one box. And again, people are going to be mad at me, but look, I have some extra money and that's what I spend it on. Wow. I've never even thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving the, I, I always try to mix it so, to get the clump out, and I'm gonna have to try leaving the clump in. So. It's really nice. It's really nice. my sister for Christmas two years ago. I just finished up 
For Christmas, she gave me a gallon-sized Ziploc bag that had probably 20 of the packets. So she took the ethical dilemma off my shoulders. So she just, she tore open 20 boxes. She put the noodles in a separate bag. She used the noodles for cooking, but she gave me all the powder. And it's up there in the top three best Christmas presents I've ever gotten. Dax, I believe I can talk to some people in the know that could probably send you industrial size bags of it. Oh, baby. For real. If you could do that, because we also make for the kids, we'll take those packets and make broccoli. You're just making normal broccoli, but you sprinkle some of that craft and you got something. Have you tried that? No, I I haven't, but I'm serious. Like Isaac and Daniel producers, make a note, like just remind me to ask the people (laughs) that can make this happen. Because I'm pretty sure we can make this happen for you. If a five-gallon Home Depot bucket shows up at my house of that craft, I, I think I mean, it's going to be at least five gallons. <laughs> I think you might have enough for a twenty-year supply. <laughs> Seriously, oh my god, that makes me think of. Um, are you hip to the the Greek salad thing in Detroit? That's the other thing we have that's unique. I didn't know Greek salad was a thing. Mm. It's a big thing in in Detroit, and it's it's in every restaurant. You do, it, it has really doesn't need to be a Greek restaurant. It, it's just generally favored by everyone in Michigan. And it's iceberg base, tons of feta, some beets, red onion, and some um, pepperoncinis. It's simple, but it's the dressing. The dressing is very very unique. And so once I moved to California. I longed for that dressing so much. And I was back home in Michigan and I basically tipped one of the chefs at one of these places, 20 bucks to, to write down the recipe for me for the Greek dressing. But it yielded, I think it <laughs> yielded literally five gallons of dressing. So I go back to my one bedroom apartment in Santa Monica and my girlfriend at the time, Bree, who was from Washington, I've got like gallons of canola oil. I've got like a half pound of MSG. I'm trying to cut it in half, but my math breaks down. The most I can do is just cut it in half. Otherwise, I'm going to get into some confusing stuff. So anyways, I I made two and a half gallons of this dressing. I was trying to give it out to everybody. And then it was just in my cupboards for years. And I wondered what, (laughs) what the shelf life was. Yeah, it was a big ordeal. Well, the most important thing about that salad besides the dressing is iceberg lettuce, which is the king of all lettuces as far as thank I'm concerned. Thank you. Oh, yeah. my God. Thank you. I hate everyone's disdain for iceberg. It's so Best. superior. A fucking per- a good wedge. Oh. What salad are you going to top with a good wedge? I don't know because a wedge, that is like the best thing. It's a vehicle for other things that are flavorful mm. and delicious. But I don't even know where iceberg got so maligned. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. It's crisp. It's crunchy. It's great in the sandwiches. I can't have oh. a BLT without an iceberg, but like the pizza shop iceberg Greek salad type of salad with the creamy or the just a Italian vinaigrette. It doesn't, oh. You can't beat it. No, you're not going to beat it. Also, you can wrap a hamburger in it if you're going low carb. Oh. You're, you're not going to yeah, do yeah. that with spinach leaves. In and out style? Yeah, of course. Oh, oh baby. That's how I get mine there. <laughs> Um, you know what's funny is when I talk to you, I have some anxiety that I'm not a foodie. Fuck but then it, once I'm talking to you, I I feel like, oh no, I love the shit out of food. I, I it just might be low brow. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. In fact, I think we need to probably course correct on how we talk about food because so much of how food gets sort of translated is it's got to be fancy, it's got to be all these things. But at the end of the day, all that matters is do people enjoy it? And if people enjoy it, that's what you should be talking about. Yeah, and I like this movement a ton where it's like you're taking these things that traditionally were class dividers 
and I have a big class chip on my shoulder just for whatever reason. I am trying to overcome it. But yeah, there's these things that are like low class, uh, tuna noodle and beans, you know, these, all these different things that are, are, are low class. But I love this movement of like making it the same offerings we all love, but with like great ingredients. That to yep. me seems like the most exciting aspect of where food has been going. And it's going to continue because everything else has been mined. And I think we're at a place now where a lot of people are realizing what the fuck were we celebrating before? You know, casserole, a good example is casserole. We have another podcast called Recipe Club and we did a casserole episode and not one of us has ever made a casserole in our lives. Oh, okay. I make one pretty often. Do you want to know what it is? It's so simple. Tell me. My mother made this all the time. This is the white trashiest meal you could possibly have. So you ground a couple pounds of ground beef with onion and then you dump in one can of Campbell's cheese soup. You mix that up. You then roll out a Bizquick. Ooh. You slice it on the sides. You shell out half of that beef into the center of it, and then you crisscross and pinch. Oh, I'm sorry, I left out a thing. On top of that lovely beef and um, cheddar cheese soup mush, you put slices of sharp cheddar cheese on. Then you crisscross then another layer of sharp cheddar cheese on top of that, pop it in the oven. You go back to your your stew, you add another can of the (laughs) Campbell's cheese soup. So now it's a little thinner. You pull that thing out and then you smother the casserole with all that other ground beef and cheese and then serve it with a side of applesauce. And I've served this to many people who are super into food and they're just shocked with how good it is. I mean, it's it's it couldn't be cheaper or trashier, and it's delectable. Well, I'll be honest. This is my prediction for the next five, 10 years in food. You're going to see that movement that you've been talking about, making food that people never thought could be made great with good ingredients. That's going to continue to happen. But after making casserole and then asking ourselves, what the fuck, how elitist are we that we've never cooked a casserole when it's clearly one of the most popular things America makes or eat like on a, on a regular basis for people that are not foodies and they cook at home and it's accessible. It's easy to make. It's almost always using prepackaged ingredients and it's going to be delicious. Yeah. And I was like, what does that say about us that we've never fucking even <laughs> made a casserole? And if you go through all of these food magazines, you're never going to see a goddamn casserole recipe. And that's when I was like, oh my God, you know what's going to happen? When you go to restaurants, when they come back online, I guarantee you it's going to happen instead of like pasta section, salad, soup section at these fancy, you know, fancy restaurants where you spend like 50 bucks person plus. You're going to see casseroles. Mm. Oh, I hope you're right. Because every now and then you'll you'll stumble into a place that's got like uh, a pot pie. And I'm always like, yes, bring it. Bring me that chicken pot pie. Or a shepherd's pie. I love it. Marie Clary chicken pot pie. Swanson chicken pot pies. That's the shit mm. I grew up on eating too. Can I ask a couple more things before I let you go on, on, on food in Detroit? So I found it funny in New York where it became all the rage is, uh, and it still is, Detroit style pizza. Oh my God. Did you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Please give me your thoughts. Because I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> okay, so my brother on television from Parenthood, Peter Krause, who I adore. We are brothers in real life. He sent me three weeks ago a screen grab 
of, I assume, Postmates or something in Sebastopol, California, which is like a little tiny weird town north of San Francisco, like a hippie town. And he said, look what we have up here. And it said Detroit style pizza. I still have not responded to that text three weeks later because I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> There's no such thing as Detroit style pizza, is there? What is that? There are restaurants that serve Detroit style pizza in New York City. And there are chains like I think Jet. Have you had Jet Pizza in Detroit? No, no. It's like a chain. They do like a, what is like it, a Sicilian style. It's like a square size. It's like, oh. You know what it is? It's like a Little Caesars, which is oh. Detroit. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. variations of a little style. But that's funny. You don't even know what it is. <laughs> well, right. Detroit style pizza is Domino's and Little Caesars. Both of those chains came out of Michigan. Tom Monahan and, and Mike Illich. Yeah, square. Right? It's like a square pie that's got like a pan, like almost Pizza Hut-like crust okay. type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, do you know, I would imagine if I had to bet my life on what this all stems from, I bet it's from Buddy's Pizza, which was a chain that was very popular in the 80s. And it was that. It was like mid-level. It wasn't a, a Chicago style depth and it was not New York. It was like a mid-level, like a mid-cut Jordan in square, always well rectangle. And yeah, crispy as a motherfucker. And it's delicious, but I never assumed that was proprietary to Detroit. Well, the past five years, I would say, in city centers across America, your <laughs> beloved city, Detroit, <laughs> has ruled the pizza-making <laughs> land. It's so that crazy. That is total news to me. Yeah. I, but, but again, I left 26 years ago this year. So maybe this all happened while I've been gone. And the last thing... Having been to Detroit a few times, a lot of people from that area in Michigan, the one flavor of soda that I've never really, or pop as you guys call it, is Verner's. Do you like oh, Verner's? I do, but you know, I, everyone I would imagine from Michigan associates it so much with being sick. That was like the cure-all. Anytime you were sick, you got to stay home from school and your mom bought you a bottle of Verner's. That's what was supposed to get you through it. So I so associate it which is not entirely bad because I had the day off school. It meant people were paying attention to me. Uh, it was a special thing I got. But I don't know that I ever just cracked open a Verner's for fun outside of being sick. But the Detroit pop that I loved was Fago because Fago had rock and rye, which is a delicious flavor. I can't imagine drinking it as an adult because I only drink diet soda now. But yeah, rock and rye. They had frosh, uh, red pop, all those bizarre flavors, and they were pretty darn big. That was pretty dominant in Detroit in my childhood. I see. I, I've never had that flavor, but but really, oh, let me just explain to people listening what the experience of drinking a Verner's is because you've had them. I'm assuming. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. You pop it and you immediately sneeze. It's the most effervescent thing in a bottle ever created. Yeah. It's like they drop the alcohol seltzer, like five alcohol seltzers in there. Yes. It's a shock the bottle didn't explode on its own volition. When you pop that thing in, it just starts erupting like a volcano with pops and fizzes, and you always sneeze. Maybe that's how it became associated with, I don't know. But yeah, it is, it is a very unique soda. Yeah, I, I just don't understand it because it doesn't taste good to me <laughs> at all. No, it, it, it for me, it's it again, it tastes medicinal. It's like, okay, you're going to get through this <laughs> bottle of Verner's. You're going to feel a lot better for it. <laughs> well, listen, Dax, I know how busy you are. I, I, I'm grateful that you decided to come on this pod. And um, how do people watch Top Gear America? 
They subscribe to the Motor Trend app. Yeah, this is my first time being on something that's only on a streaming service. So it's interesting to, yeah, I have to explain that. Yeah, I guess you subscribe to the Motor Trend app. The one cool thing about that is they own the entire library of Top Gear. So like the, the entire canon of, of Top Gear, British and American, exists on that app. And they have a bunch of other really great car shows. But the one thing I'll say about the show and you brought up is um, the other big goal of the show was just to make it not for just gearheads because that was the appeal. Look, when the British Top Gear had 750 million viewers, it was not because there are 750 million gearheads on the planet. It's that they were doing something that definitely transcended the topic. And so that was very much a goal we had with this one, too. I was like, you know, I want the comedy to be the star as much as any of the cars are or the, Dax, the adventure. It's a great show. It's a. So I was glad to hear your wife liked it because my wife, too, I showed her and I think she was like, oh, here we go. I got to be supportive and watch his fucking dumb car show. And she was like dying laughing. And she's like, I like I love this show. I would watch this show. And I was delighted to hear that. The Overland car episode was laugh out loud <laughs> funny. So, you know, I was like, we're watching a car show. What the hell's going on here? And yeah, yeah, good, 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 good. That's no, the goal. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass just because I was like, wow, this is something that I'm going to watch during quarantine <laughs> because it's exactly what you want. It's different. It's funny. It's all of these things. And it's like, this is a, a real achievement because you have my wife, Karen, and I cars. Oh, good. Good, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. And you're doing well? When we spoke, it was at the kind of the beginning. Yeah, it's still and fucking it, a total shit show. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you know. It's been, it's been, <laughs> mental health-wise, man, it's been a, it's quite a year for everyone. It's been tough, but, you know, for the most part, everyone I know is healthy. And, uh, you know, we're getting through it just like everybody else. But I yeah. can't ask for anything more. But it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to underestimate the impact of it, I think. I think I see it with a ton of relationships, like in our, our friendship group, our own relationship. Like it's such a different dynamic and there's so much unknown and you think you understand that intellectually, but I, I find that everyone keeps underestimating what the actual toll is. Yeah. I think I do. I'll be acting so bizarre or outside of what, you know, again, I relapsed this year. There's a million reasons why that happened, but Certainly, this thing was one of them, you know? <laughs> it was definitely part of it. And I think I underestimated it. You know, the strangest thing about that, what you're saying is, with all the sort of work I've done on, on myself through psychiatric care and all that, I've learned by being a little bit more present without being on the road as much as I normally would be, like six months a year, I'm traveling all over the place, is like when I'm cooking or... I do something that I that I don't think I would have realized I caused a negative reaction, you know, because I'm so into my own world. Yeah. And with it being a little bit slower, I'm like, oh, I'm a fucking dick. Like I'm being a dick when I <laughs> yes. didn't think I was being a dick. Like, oh shit. Yeah. And because I can yeah. notice things a little bit differently. And I and now I can address it and be like, hey. And my wife was like, you know, what's strange is you would never have even notice that you did something wrong before. Well, right, because you'd be moving so fast. You wouldn't, yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's been like a good and a hard thing. I think like without all the distractions, you are left with your thoughts. <laughs> like 
all those distractions are a nice vacation from my thoughts, which in general, my thoughts don't lead me to the promised land. My thoughts lead me, you know, to terrible yeah. places. So, yeah, it's been interesting to have so much time. Too much time. And, uh, you know, I, I've had some, I've changed medication. I'm on more shit this year. So I think that's helped out. But for the most part, having, like you're saying, too much time to yourself is actually negative for me. <laughs> Real yeah. negative. Yeah. yeah. I, I think like the one week a month to decompress is ideal. But I, anything beyond that is like you're asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. All right, David. Well, it's always a pleasure, man. I'm glad to see you. Just stay safe. And honestly, let's, I'm going to figure out how to get you those, um, <laughs> what I hope is a 20 gallon jug. <laughs> oh my God. Product. If if you get me that, I might be inclined to like really start experimenting and maybe have to put out a, a, well, uh, a listen, craft I, cookbook. <laughs> I know who to talk to and uh -huh. I think they would be overjoyed to know that they can help you out with this. Well, so. look, like, look at this. If, if I have a 20 gallon bucket of it, I doubt a ribeye craft dry rub is a good idea, <laughs> but but I'll find out. And who fucking knows? That might be insanely good. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs>